0: Hey, thanks for being a part of the conversation. This is Play It Forward. Real people, real stories. The struggle to play it forward. Episode number 606 is with actor Jason Isaacs from the movie Archie. Good morning. Hello and good morning.
1: Oh, look at our Look at your still. Jesus. What is that dream catcher you got? Oh, my God. Very few people understand that. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. You can switch your camera on if you want to say hello, but I know it's an audio (laughs) interview, so you don't have to.
0: Yeah, but look at how official you look with that microphone right there
1: in front of you. Look at me. I know. It looks like I'm presenting a show and you're on it.
0: (laughs) I got to ask you, from one voiceover actor to another, how did you master the
1: voice of Cary Grant? Well, I didn't Uh, Oh my god I I tried to master the voice of Archie Leach And I could not find a recording of Cary Grant anywhere And it was a nightmare Uh, There's the movies, but that's not what he sounded like Uh, I knew it wasn't what he sounded like Partly because his daughter Jennifer said to me He was more English than that He was always Mm -hmm. correcting her pronunciations Uh, But secondly, because he says almost exactly He uses exactly the same intonation pattern for every line Almost every line in every movie he says in exactly the same way And uh, I just knew that if he'd dropped hot coffee in his lap in the morning, that wasn't the voice he used. And also, when his marriage was going horribly wrong to Diane Cannon, he was screaming at her all the times he was... I know he was crying because he cried a lot. He was very uh, phlegmatic and volcanic emotionally. I just knew he wasn't this voice that he used in the movies. Yeah. So I asked the re- research team, please find me an interview, find me a talk show, find me one of these conversations like we're having. And he didn't do them. Wow. He didn't do any of them because he knew that the real Archie Leach... Was so millions of miles away from the Cary Grant that the world knew and loved that he didn't want the mask to drop and the public to see who he was. So I was panicking, right, frankly, as we got closer to uh, starting rolling cameras, because I thought, I just don't know. I just don't know how he sounded. And then I came across an interview. I read an interview that was a, clearly a transcript. I tracked the guy down who'd done it, hadn't been a journalist for 40 years. He was a student journalist when he did it. And I said, listen, I found this interview. It looks like a transcript did you record this thing? And he started to panic and be very cautious and wondered who I was and why I was asking. And I explained, look, I'm just an actor and I'm playing him and to hear his own voice. And he told me the story. He had been a student and his university were doing a film festival, Cary Grant uh, Films. And so he wrote to Cary Grant's lawyer and said, is there any chance, uh, I know Mr. Grant doesn't do movies, hasn't worked for decades, but is there any chance he would answer some written questions? And he got a letter back saying, if you phone this number on Saturday morning, you can have a chat. So he went down to the university radio department, and he phoned up, not knowing what was going to happen. And sure enough, Barbara Grant, his fifth wife, got on the phone. She says, "Hold on a second, I'll just get Carrie." And Carrie Grant came on the phone, and this twenty-two-year-old kid—you know—you can hear him gulping, uh, and you hear his stomach going to knots. And Carrie Grant, the very first thing he says is, "You're not recording this, are you? I don't want this recorded." And he said, well, I was—I mean, I was thinking. Was you don't? I don't want it recorded." Wow. So he gestured to his friend in the booth. He said, stop. He said, sure. And his friend nodded. They had a conversation for an hour, at the end of which his friend said, I mean, I did record it. Obviously, I'm not stupid. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. he hadn't played it to anyone in 40 years mm. out of respect for Cary Grant's wishes. And I said, I begged him. I, I begged him. Please. I said, I've got somebody's satellite.' And he played it to me. And that's the voice that I try to copy or inhabit in the show because it's much more uh, insecure and he's got a higher laugh, and he's he just uh, less of that kind of masculine certainty yeah. that he projects in all of his characters. Yeah. It, essentially, if he's unflappable on screen... In life, he was a very flappable man, a very emotionally fragile, and his voice reflects that too.
0: Wow. See, that re- that opens up my eyes now to go back and watch it again, because because I was so convinced, but I have to, I have to remind myself that this movie isn't about Cary Grant, it's about Archie. Yeah. And, and, and that, I, I was so drawn into this because I think there are so many creative people that are silently going through these storms.
1: I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I would, by the way, I wouldn't have taken the job if it was to play Cary Grant because you'd be a moron to try and replicate the world's sexiest, the most beloved man for 30 years. The thing is, he struggled to play the world's sexiest man for 30 years because behind closed doors, he wasn't that at all. He was extremely vulnerable and extremely uh, angry, full of rage and self-hatred and, and felt unlovable. Ironically, having won the love of the entire world, he still felt like the child he had been, who was so badly abused and neglected and abandoned, who was permanently starving. I mean, just couldn't eat anywhere, so ate everything. Adult Cary Grant ate, unrelated to hunger, what was on his plate, what was on Diane's plate, what was on anyone else's plate, and then couldn't bear food in the, in the waste. And just retrieved it all the time, put it in the fridge, told Jennifer off if she ever didn't completely finish every part of an apple. Um, so, yeah, I think I mean, I think that the, the challenge here was to throw away the expectations of the audience who think they're going to watch Cary Grant and surprise them by going, this is who he was when he stepped through his front door.
0: Wow. You know, you, you talk about that apple. I, I, In my own personal life, dude, my dad would say the same thing. Every bit of that apple better be gone. And and to this day, I sure. eat every single bit of that apple. There right, is no right. apple core.
1: No, that makes sense. Look, he, my dad's 91. And when he was a kid, was a little kid, even the day he started school, they came to get him in the middle of the day and went, Isaacs. And they pulled him out and they said, you're not at this school anymore. Because cool. his dad was a bit of a ne'er-do-well and was continually not managing to pay rent and they were kicked out of their house or bailiffs came to take everything away and he's 91 years old and he still has nightmares about bailiffs. Mm. Well, that's not a fraction as abusive as Cary Grant's childhood was. And so while he was the most beloved person in the world and as Diane said to me, honey, we walk into a room and everybody wanted him. I mean, people stopped breathing. The men, the women, he just radiated just, you know, beauty. But he felt disgusting mm. and he felt he was unlovable. And so all the people that he married, for instance, and the other relationships he had, he drove them away. He made them reject him by behaving so abominably that he was testing them. And sure enough, in the end, it fulfilled exactly what he expected. They abandoned him. It was, he was a very troubled man.
0: Listeners need to understand this is on BritBox, and and so and and really, and I've I invested in BritBox about about a year ago, and it's really the greatest thing because I get British actors, I get British storylines, and and it's and that and so this is something. Archie is something that they need to put onto
1: their their plate to do this weekend. Hmm. No, I mean I hope. I, by the way, if I make it sound depressing, uh, when I took the job, thinking, okay, I can play Archie Leach. I can't play Cary Grant. That's fine. I'll play him. But what, where is this going to go? And I read right. the scripts and the, the point of connection with me is that in the end, I think what saved him, what began to help him heal was that he had a kid and he started to love this child right. in an uncomplicated way. And he didn't expect love back from her and he didn't force her to leave him and he didn't bully her and manipulate her. He just wondered at this child who just loved him absolutely like children do. Mm-hmm. And it was in the act of giving love. That he started to find himself because he'd been seeking love his whole life, and for, for me, that was the kind of the redemptive arc of it that made it a story worth telling.
0: So, how did Diane and Jennifer act and react while
1: this was coming together? Because I mean, th- this is this is their life. Sure. I mean, this is touchy stuff. So Jeff Pope, the uh, brilliant writer who uh, has a long history of taking real life stories and making award winning drama out of them. Americans were known from Philomena and Stan and Ollie, but British people known for a lot of very political stuff and crime based stuff. Um, He read Jennifer's book at an airport and Jennifer had a very different picture of Cary Grant. He he was a doting dad. He'd retired from acting and he just uh, focused all of his energy and life into giving her the perfect childhood that he didn't have. So she wrote this book, and he he read it and went, wow, that's the biggest star in the world, stopped acting and became a stay-at-home dad. That's so wild. Then he got hold of Diane's book, and he went, ooh, <laughs> that's who he was. <laughs> oh, wow. I had no idea. So they have very different stories to tell Jeff, and Jeff was very clear to them early on. Look, I'll bring you on board. You can be executive producers. It's my story. I'm not going to temper anything or hold back for fear of upsetting either of you. I want to tell the story as I find it to be true and believe it to be true. And they both... I have to say, hats off to them. They are very brave of them, particularly Diane. Sorry, particularly Jennifer, to watch her dad, who she really didn't see anything negative about, portrayed in, with so many faults and you know such a kind of cracked mold. But she she's an artist, and she wanted to tell the full story of the full man. Diane, on the other hand, you're right. This We are reliving some of the most painful moments of her life. And when I was talking to her, And she was incredibly candid with me I mean, I asked her the most personal questions You could ever ask anybody, I'm sure you can imagine She uh, I kept on apologizing She'd she'd chronicle for me what she had to put up with as this young girl married to a 61-year-old Global icon And and realizing she'd married a monster Mm -hmm. Who changed the way she looked, the way she talked The way she moved uh, Stopped her working, locked her in the bedroom I mean, you know, a bunch of stuff That really stifled the life out of her And who could she tell? Who was going to believe her at the time? Um, So I just kept on. I I pictured my own child. I've got two daughters. I just kept on apologizing to this 86-year-old lady for what happened to her when she was 26 and 27. And she had to access again the Mm. stuff that she's a hell of a lot of work to get over. She said, I've done so much healing, honey. I am not angry anymore. Well, I made her angry because I made made her relive those things for me. Um, So it was a complicated for both of them and i think for diane at least it's given us some closure she spent decades and decades thinking about him talking about him writing about him and now she can put that behind her at 86 and go i it's definitively told that story and i can move on For jennifer i don't know i just admire her guts for opening this up in public
0: Congratulations on this. I, I I'm I'm just moved by this, and I and I think that that all people will be moved by this, especially creative people, because like I said, there are silent people mm-hmm. that are in this world right now that, that that struggle with their own inner monsters.
1: You're right. It's it's really interesting for creative people, but there's something else as well which makes it relevant. Because I did wonder about. Why are we resurrecting this dead movie star to tell his private life story? It's not like the world knows who it is or most uh, viewers will know. And it's because there's so many people we worship today and come through our phones mm-hmm. and laptops and screens and who we are meant to feel less than. You know, they they have giant social media followers. We can actually, you know, we can put a number to how popular they are. We don't just feel they're more popular. We can actually assign a number to it. And they curate their lives we all do it everybody curates the public version of themselves and we all look at each other's, our friends or all these global icons because fame has replaced religion and we look at them and we feel it's easy to feel less than them and so it's, an, it's a, a reminder a very really vivid dramatic reminder watching this show that first of all no one's life is what it seems on the outside mm-hmm. your friends your neighbours or the Kardashians or anybody else is what it seems like and mostly we should look to ourselves and if your inner voice Because Cary Grant's inner voice was really horrendous and screaming most of the time. If your inner voice is really at odds with your outer voice and you're nothing like what you project to the world, you should work on that and do something about it. Because it will only cause you grief and the people around you grief. Uh, And, uh, you know, that for me, that was the reason to tell this story, because otherwise it's just Layers of onions back on the dead movie star. See, you bring up a
0: very interesting point because on iHeartRadio, I've been talking a lot about you know what creates the grumpy old man syndrome. Because I'm I'm a true believer that it doesn't happen at a certain age; that it takes an entire life to get to that moment. And see, that's why mm. I want to study even deeper into Archie because I want I want to know and and because and because once you know, then you teach people. And when you bump into it, then you're able to say, Hey, look, here's something that we can do, and it's going to be
1: it's it's going to be far greater than just meditating sure well I mean there was all kinds of spiritual lessons by the way he was a huge spiritual seeker really? he had such trouble he was, he was a very really bright man he knew he was trouble he knew that he pushed people away he knew that ah, he was crazy about money he was you know he was, uh, today we'd label him with a bunch of acronyms and we'd be right to he'd be OCD he'd be ADHD he'd definitely be ptsd yeah and he'd probably have joined a 12-step group as well because he drank until his you know liver exploded so he'd probably be aa as well but anyway he knew that he had a bunch of stuff he needed to deal with and he tried everything he took LSD hundreds of times with a doctor uh you know he wasn't a hippie he hated the hippies born in 1904 he married a young girl who was you know part of that progressive movement and then he tried to turn her into a victorian woman but um but he took acid because he thought it would help him with his nightmares yep. and with these flashbacks he had all the time to his childhood. And at the time, he was a real evangelist, wrote about it all the time. Then later in life, he went, I don't know what I was doing. I was an idiot. Um, but he was a seeker for any kind of peace, and he didn't get there because you just got to be lucky enough and open-minded and willing enough to change. I think I've certainly seen this. If you're one of the biggest stars in the world, and everybody says and, be- and treats you like you're actually divine – It's harder to find the courage to change because you just get so validated at every turn. Everybody, you know, no one's criticizing you. No one ever says no to you about anything. So maybe you think salvation lies in just controlling the world. And he became this insane control freak. I'm not a psychologist, but what the hell? I'm I'm an actor, so I have to play pop psychologist for my characters. (laughs) And I think that what he was trying to do was control literally every aspect of everything he ever encountered, including the people that he loved. Because maybe, just maybe then, he could stop the chaos from re-entering his mind. You know, the the kind of randomness and carnage of his childhood. And it doesn't work. You talked about how when he would
0: walk in the room that everybody would just be drawn to him. I think that that was transferred also to Diane Cannon. Because, I mean, as a kid growing up watching Diane Cannon, she stole the air out of my
1: lungs. And I think she learned that. Oh, I don't know if it's a skill. I mean, look, he had this thing growing up. He was monstrously abused, but he was gorgeous. When he yeah. started turning into a teenager, he was pretty. And he knew he was pretty, and he knew it was something he could use. And he was starving. So in New York, he was a male escort. He did what he had to do to survive. And I think that stuff, that, the shame of that stayed with him his whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know when he first got to Hollywood. You know, It may well be that some of that same thing he had going for him he continued for a while because if everybody wants to sleep with you, that's something you can give them to make them like you right. and to get a roof over your head. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know that you can teach that. I don't know if Diane could pick that up. I think Diane had – He was look, he was drawn to The guy was watching television and saw an actress in black and white TV <laughs> in an episode of a show and went, her, that's what I need in my life. And because he was Cary Grant, he could call the agent, set up a meeting, and by the way, she rejected him. She went, that's creepy. This is a guy older than my dad. I'm not interested. And he phoned her every day for eight months. Wow. He was not the Cary Grant on screen. This was an obsessive man who, when he wanted someone, he harassed them and stalked them like he, like he did with Sophia Loren until she finally went, I'll get a restraining order on you if you don't stop. Wow. So, uh, yeah, he, he he took a long time to woo her and she was successful. She had her own house and she had a career going on and she just couldn't quite believe that this man who she'd grown up with, you know, seeing as the biggest star in the world, had any interest in her. But like you say, she she dazzled too. That's why he was dazzled by her. And and then he got her and he actually at some point, he said to her agent, who he said, you have to let her work. You have to let her out. You have to allow her to do the things she could at. He said, she's not leaving this house until I've broken her like a pony. Oh, wow. So, oh, wow. Yeah, he was a man of a different era, but but his own worst enemy because he loved her. Mm-hmm. He loved her. And, she, and in the end, the marriage broke down. His fourth marriage, and every time a marriage broke down, he took to his bed or he took to drink or something. It wasn't like he was indifferent to these things. He mm. just uh, he couldn't control himself.
0: I don't know how you're going to shake this story because you embrace Carrie's pain in a real way to where we believe it. And and I I, I don't know how you're going to be able to say okay that was just an acting role that I did. I don't think you can. Well, it, you you put well, yourself. Know, it was into it. a year
1: ago. I've done three films since then and a television series. So <laughs> I hope I did drop it because otherwise those films are going to be rubbish. Uh, you know, I don't take things home. It's a weird thing, acting. Uh, sometimes people think it's about learning lines. People yeah. don't, you know, learning the things you say. It's not. It's about feeling the things you feel and all the things you don't say. And as much as you possibly can, tricking your imagination into thinking that you are that person, meaning you have all their thoughts uh, and you have all their needs but for me i inhabit it as completely as i can when the camera's rolling like kids do when they're playing in the in yep. the backyard yep. and then when they say cut i start making stupid jokes and <laughs> want to play table tennis and, you know and, and it's not because i don't care and it's a surface thing it's because if you keep yourself completely free and childlike not childish although my wife might argue with you but certainly childlike you can let it flow through you and then you let it flow out of you. And then you're just back to yourself again.
0: Okay, let's let's talk about that. When you say childlike, because I mean I, I'm 61, but I tell people, but I'm still
1: 16. I totally believe in what you sure. just said. Sure. I mean that's sometimes when people visit sets, you'll see the actors, and I know crews definitely feel this, the people who work on the crew, you see the actors messing around and you think that's so irresponsible. They're born a bunch of children there. They're not, you know, they're losing we're losing the light or the location is expensive or whatever it is. And you think, why are those actors clowning around? And it's precisely to keep ourselves childlike. That's it. To keep the emotions close to the surface, to shed any of the tension that might make you not be able to be free to let something flow through you in the scene. Mm -hmm. And young actors don't do it. I've worked with a bunch of young actors who have prepared their performance so brilliantly at home and, and in front of the bathroom mirror that they start doing it when the camera rolls. You could spontaneously combust you could drop your pants. You could do anything at all. They're not going to blink. They're not going to vary one jot from what they've already planned to do. And for me, that's dead time on screen. They're not really engaged with human beings at all. And and the older I get, and the actors that I admire, I see them do this too, the more I don't plan anything. I have no idea. Whether the script says you're going to cry or shout, or whatever. I just ignore it completely. I know what's going to, you know, I, I know where we've come from. I know we need to get to and I have no idea how we're going to get there <laughs> and I just stay loose uh, and it's like an improvised dance yep and so the what the woman who plays Diane Cannon this Laura Aikman who's a phenomenal actress who I think doesn't get as much credit as she deserves because she looks a bit like Diane uh, and, and as if somehow made that made it easier to be Diane but it didn't she's a tremendous actress but she is so nimble and present that we just you know zigged and zagged together and and uh, and. the uh, a director and Jeff, the writer, just let us go, and whatever any of us had planned for the scenes, they often came out completely differently. And because life is like that, yeah. you can plan how an argument with your wife is going to go, or a day out with your best friend, and you just don't know what's going to happen. That's and right. uh, and that you need great partners to do that, and you need them to be smart enough. Not to go. Oh, this is the bit where I get angry. This is the bit where I cry, you know, and just see what happens. <laughs> Man, I could
0: talk with you all day, Jason. My God, please come back to this show any time in the future. Thank you, Era. Be brilliant, okay? I'll tr- I'll try. <laughs>